Some of our men went on a men's retreat uh, this, uh, what was it, Dakota? Past weekend? <coughs> Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. I was pretty jealous. That looked like the best men's retreat I've ever seen in my life. They went deep sea fishing and went to the beach. It was pretty cool. So, good yeah, good word. Yeah, the, I, Dakota did some posting and talk, listening to Mark, and uh, I know that God blessed them while they were there, and so we're excited about that. And lots of other ministries that uh, are just being filled up full, and, and we're just excited all the way around about what God's doing. At this time, I'm excited to get in God's Word. You ready? You ready? All right, let's get in God's Word. So turn to Malachi with me. The book of Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And there's where we will be for the next few weeks. And what I want you to do is pray with me, alongside of me, that God would show us uh, some things and some areas that we need to work on. The book of Malachi addresses not only the individual, but it also it, it addresses the congregation as well. So this is a book written to Israel uh, by Malachi, who is a, one of the minor prophets. And he addresses issues with the priesthood. He addresses, uh, he addresses issues basically with the leadership of the congregation um, of Israel. This is, and we'll get into a little bit of this more here in just a minute, but uh, just a, a little bit of an overview. He's talking to the leaders that are leading the Israelites, those that are God's chosen people, in the issues that they're having with leading God's people and how they're doing that wrongly and how they are profaning God's um, worship, how they are, uh, how they are doing things that they should not be doing and allowing things that they should not be allowing. But it also addresses individuals within those same people and how they uh, are postured towards God in their heart. Although they are doing things, the motivation of the heart is one of the key issues throughout the whole book. And I believe that is going to be very relevant for us today as well. Another big issue is compromise with the surrounding cultures and the other practices of those of the world uh, that surrounded Israel. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Before we do, I want to pray and ask God to specifically bless the sermon today and the teaching from God's Word. And then I'll ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Pray with me if you would. Lord Jesus, we pray over the book of Malachi as it goes forth. I pray, God, that you would hide me behind the cross, that it wouldn't be any of my opinions, any of my word, God, but that it would be your word going forth and I would just be a vessel. Please, God, help us uh, to see your truth, to open up our eyes, to understand not just what it means factually and intellectually, but help us to understand what it means for us. And, and I pray, God, that it would bring deep conviction, that it would bring reproof, that it would bring, it, it would bring correction and training in righteousness, Lord. I pray that it would equip us for every good work and that uh, we would understand just exactly how you would have us to apply your timeless truth to our uh, very timely needs and lives. Help us, God, today as we try to unpack your wonderful and inspired word in the book of Malachi. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're going to be looking today at chapter 1 of verse Malachi, verses 1 through 5, and they read this way, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? 
Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. So I want to give you a little bit of background on the book of Malachi. Uh, some of you may be more familiar with the book than others. And uh, some of us, I know, don't really pay that much attention to the Old Testament, which is such a shame. We understand that the Old Testament is as much Scripture and inspired as is the New Testament. We know that from uh, many different lines of reasoning. We understand that because... The New Testament, you need to understand that the authors of the New Testament, whether it be the apostles or uh, Christ himself or Luke or whoever it might be, reference the Old Testament scriptures as the inspired word of God. When Paul teaches Timothy that every word of God is breathed out, it is theonoustos, it is inspired by God, you need to understand that the New Testament canon had not been established at that time and so what Paul was referring to was the Old Testament okay it was the Torah it was the book of the law it was the prophets the prophets and Paul establishes that this book these books that we read and find in the Old Testament that they are inspired uh, words of God and they are authoritative in our life and they are uh, good for what he says, and that is for correction, for training in righteousness, for rebuke, and so on and so forth, that we would be equipped for every good work. So we come to the book of Malachi, and we understand that the book of Malachi is one of the minor prophets who speaks the word of God. And we understand this even from the, the prophet himself as he, as he writes in verse 1. He says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So this is one of the clearest instances in any of the Old Testament writings that we have that states what it is and who it's by. Very clear statement here. He is saying that I am writing down the word of the living God and my name is Malachi. Okay? So we understand that this is the word of God as we read. Now you say, well, I already believe that. Why are you saying that? Well, one, I don't think it hurts us to be reminded just how important the Old Testament is. But secondly, there are major prominent theologians and pastors and whole denominations moving to abandon the idea that the Old Testament is the Word of God, at least it, 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 that it has any relevance in our lives whatsoever, okay? So I want to establish very clearly that Malachi is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament who writes down the words of God, and we are to read them, we are to consider them, and we are to ask the, ask the God of the Bible, Yahweh, to write them on our hearts that we might not sin against Him, and we are to learn from God's Word. Now, Malachi is, there's not much information about Malachi outside of this book. He's actually not mentioned in any other book of the Old Testament. This is the only reference that we have to Malachi. Okay? Malachi wrote somewhere around 450 um, B.C. He wrote, he wrote, we know that he had to have written after 515 because he writes to the people who are making sacrifices in the temple. 
Well, this had to have been after the second temple was built. You remember the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah oversaw the rebuilding of the temple and uh, the, the wonderful, famous story about the sword and the trowel. They were working on the wall and what great lessons we can find from that. They're working on the wall and they have the trowel in one hand doing the work of God rebuilding the temple walls, rebuilding the temple, and a sword in the other hand having to fight off the enemies that were continually attacking them. But we know that the temple was rebuilt in 515, and we understand that Malachi is writing sometime after 515 because he is talking to the priests and talking to the people about how they're offering sacrifices in the temple and how deplorable their actions really are. And so most would think that he's somewhere around the time of 435 to 450, somewhere in that time range. The exact date doesn't really do any difference to the message of the book. The message remains the same no matter if we don't know the exact time. Uh, he's held to be probably a contemporary of Nehemiah as Nehemiah is building the temple. And once the temple is established, he's reestablishing the proper etiquette and the proper uh, steps and the, and the proper um, way to offer sacrifices in the temple, the proper way to approach God and the proper way to worship God as it were, uh, as it is laid out in the Old Testament on how we are to worship God. So we understand that Malachi, there's not a whole lot known about him. His name means messenger, and with the full name there, it could very well mean the Lord's messenger. And as a matter of fact, um, in the Targum of Jonathan, the Targum of Jonathan, which is another, um, it's another writing from this era, it's not a canonical writing, but it's just a historical writing, Jonathan refers to Malachi actually as Ezra, claiming that it was Ezra that wrote the book of Malachi. Okay? Now that doesn't do any damage because it may very well be that Malachi could just be a designation referring to Ezra as the Lord's messenger, which it wouldn't change the meaning of the book at all. But most uh, believe that uh, Jonathan was probably just wrong, but Jerome did agree with Jonathan as well. i just tell you all that for a little bit of background, that Malachi could be a designation, and it's actually Ezra writing this book. That would be fine. It wouldn't do any damage to the book. It wouldn't do any damage to the, inspi the inspiration of the book. It could just be that Ezra's putting himself forth as the Lord's messenger. But most people agree, and, and I agree, that I think that Malachi is a proper name and that Malachi is one of the minor prophets distinct from Ezra or any other minor prophet or prophet of the Old Testament, and that he's writing this book, and he's probably a contemporary along with uh, Nehemiah and a lot of Malachi's message goes hand in hand with the message of Nehemiah what he's instructing the people on how he's rebuking the people and what he's bringing forth against the people and the and the major thrust of the book is that the people of Israel have been exiled into Babylonian captivity for the longest time uh, because of their uh, because of the ways that they approached God because that they had um, they had mocked God, and they had brought other false religions and false gods. They had uh, become smitten with idolatry, and they had forsaken the Lord their God for cisterns that hold no water. And so God brought judgment upon the people, and he exiled them into uh, Babylonian captivity and into Assyrian captivity. And this is after that. This is post-exilic uh, 
literature here, when Malachi is writing to those, they have come back out of the land of Babylon, they have rebuilt the second temple, and now they get another shot at being able to worship God and bring offerings and sacrifices into the temple like they should have the whole time. But here we find them again doing the exact same things that they were before, that they were bringing them with uh, ill-motivated hearts. They were not in love with God. It was a burden to them. They were bringing the lame. They were bringing the sick. They were bringing the, the blind. And, and the next sentence will tell you just how, how relevant this is for us. They were doing just the bare necessity to make sure it looked like they were, they were people of God. They were doing just what, was just what they thought would, would suffice to appease an angry God. At one point in the book, Malachi says, these offerings that you bring, would the governor accept those same offerings? You know, we could ask that question today like this. If you gave the same effort at your job as you give in the house of God with the people of God, would your boss be giving you a raise? Would you even still have a job? If you gave the same effort on, in, in the, the assembly of believers, in the ecclesia, in the, in the gathering of the saints, if you gave the same effort for the kingdom of God and the work that He has for us, proclaiming the gospel, reaching the lost, feeding the poor, proclaiming the life-saving gospel to those who are in darkness, if you gave the same effort in those matters, in kingdom matters, as you did learning how to play the next call of duty. You laugh, but it ain't funny. As you, gave, as you give in learning how to, that new technique of cutting that tree. Let me hit me. If you put in the same time of studying God's Word as you do studying YouTube videos on how to do your new and recent fad and hobby, if you put the same effort into the kingdom of God as you do into pleasing your boss at work trying to get more money, what would it do for the kingdom of God? So that's the reverse of that. So what would your job like, what would your boss be like if you gave the same effort there as you do in the things of God? Many of us would be fired on the spot. And then turn it around. What if you gave the effort in the things of God as you do in your hobbies, your work, your whatever? Oh, how the kingdom of God would explode. Well, these are the major thrusts, and, and, and this is this compromise, this laziness, this, this degradation of God's person that we would only offer Him just what we have left over. I'm done with it, God. Now you can have it. It's a major part of this book. And along with that, we have this idea of we have this idea of compromise, bringing other loves and other gods, other ideas, other supposed truths, which are evils, and calling them good as if God is pleased with them. This is getting in bed with the world and still wanting to call God your husband. 
I had, and, and we'll get into this even deeper later in the book because uh, I'm just giving you an overview right now, but I've got a bunch of pictures of church signs. You can look these up yourself. Church signs that promote the idea that all faiths are equal, that Jesus is just another God, or that homosexuality is not only not sinful but should be celebrated. The idea that transgenderism, that you're evil if you don't accept people that are transgender. The idea that there is no hell. The idea that everyone is saved. You don't need Jesus. This influx of the culture into the church is evil. And it's deplorable and it's wicked beyond all measure. And God is not pleased with this. Well, these are some of the major topics covered in Malachi. Those are a bunch of negatives. And it is a very judgmental book. It is a very judgmental book in the fact that it holds up the standard and it examines the people according to the standard that's been set by God. But there is some positive in the book. And that is, is that God is faithful to His people. And for those who love God, they will not fall. Though it looks dire at times, though it looks as if there's no light at the end of the tunnel, He will save His people. And He will make a way for the elect to shine forth as bright as the sun. He says as much fairly explicitly. So with all that being said, let's get in to the first five verses is what I want to unpack for you today. And as we do, I want to quote for you um, Dr. Alden, who was one of the commentary authors that I, that I wrote, that I read uh, in preparation for the sermon. He says this, he says, the battle for, about the book, he says, the battle for truth and righteousness had waned because their obvious enemies were gone, speaking of the Israelites. Yet this left room for the not-so-obvious enemies, namely smugness, pride, and compromise. What did he mean by that? Well, I think it's a good place for us to start because, as Paul Washer said, and I loosely quote, paraphrase, he was talking, and, and Washer was a, a missionary uh, in several different countries and um, a man of God who is not one to compromise, although he admits his different struggles, he's not God. But he was speaking and, and uh, preaching a sermon one day, and he says, you know, what I've found in my own personal experience and what I've witnessed in other brothers is that it's really not that hard to stare death in the face and stand boldly. For the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I don't, and he admits, he says, I don't know why that is. Many people think that the hardest thing was, would be to put, have a, a gun put in your face and be told, deny Christ or die. He said, but for some reason, and, the, and he's faced these instances. He says, for some reason, when your life is immediately on the line in that moment, there is some type of supernatural grace, supernatural power that enables a lot of men and women to stare down the barrel of a gun and say, I choose Christ. 
He said, that's not actually the true test. The true test is when the consequences are not so immediate. He said, the true test to your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ is when you're in your bathroom, when you're in your bedroom, when you're in your car, and you're all alone, and no one is looking, the world is not watching, there are no cameras, there are no guns, there are no immediate consequences, and the one who parades as an angel of light whispers in your ear, nobody will know. That's when the true test has come. Here in the book of Malachi, we see this very same thing. That the enemies have been conquered. We find ourselves in, in history uh, when King Artaxerxes was in power at that time of, of the largest nation. We see that uh, Zerubbabel was the king of uh, the nations that immediately surrounded them and even uh, liked the idea of them rebuilding the temple and wanted them to continue to uh, uh, pursue after God and offer sacrifices. They enjoyed this. I was speaking with someone uh, yesterday. I can't even remember who it was. I run my mouth in too many conversations. But I remember talking to someone. Oh, it was Dustin. Dustin and I were talking. And you need to understand something right now. The state is not opposed to the church. The state is opposed to the true church. As a matter of fact, whatever this thing is called church that is being promoted in America that is swallowing wholeheartedly the ideas of the world and calling them good, that is not church. As a matter of fact, that is a state-owned organization that promotes the state's ideologies and wickedness. They have, no, they have no desire to preach a truth that is truth. They have a desire. They have a desire to compromise and to become bedmates and bedfellows with the ideas of the world and a wicked and corrupt government and state agency that is America. Now, I, I'm an American. I like to consider myself a, a patriot. I don't think that you have to hate America to preach what I'm preaching today. But I think that you have to weep over what America was and what America is now. So is this a political sermon? No, I don't think so. What this is is a sermon that is pleading and calling churches and individual believers to come back to the word of God no matter what it means for you in reference to the powers that be we pray for our country and for those countries around the world that they would repent that they would call evil evil and that they would call good, and we know, call good, good, and we know that there's only one who is good. His name is Christ. 
Here in the book of Malachi, as we open up, we've already said that the, the first verse establishes that this is the word of God to Israel by Malachi. And then verse 2 starts out with this phrase, which is so amazingly wonderful. The Lord himself says, I have loved you. That's exactly right, Ben. God says, I have loved you. Now remember, he's speaking to a group of people who have been wayward, who have compromised, who have offered uh, the blind and the lame, who have offered the least in order to appease an angry God. And in so doing, the book even says that it was a burden to them. We've grown weary of you, God, doing these things. Oh, my goodness, how that could be applied today. How many people, and uh, you, you have to deal with your own conscience, how many people think it's such a burden to get up on Sunday mornings and come to church? How many people think it's such a burden to do a ministry in the church, whether it be Kidwell or whether it be uh, Christmas in Action or one of our mission programs, whether it be spout on wednesday night do you know how many people we've asked to volunteer on wednesday nights and it's such a burden to minister to the children on wednesday nights we cannot get help but that's just one of many god says i've loved you even though you're in this wayward way i have loved you i have shown love for you i have been there he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, and now this is God speaking in a rhetorical way. He says, but you say, how have you loved us? Now, this whole book is broken down in this way that there will be rhetorical questions throughout the book. And it's almost like, you know, the, the, you know a lot of people say that God has no sense of humor. But this, this book, in my opinion, okay, is the sarcasm of God being revealed. This is a sarc... God is being so sarcastic in this book. It's like me talking to my kids. I loved you, but you said, how have I loved you? Well, let me show you how. <laughs> it's a rhetorical question. And we have seven of those rhetorical questions. I'll read them real quick for you. They'll, he'll, and this is just what he's saying that they're saying. They won't say it that way. How have you loved us? This is what they would be saying. How have we despised your name? How have we defiled you? Who does, why does he not accept our offerings? How have we wearied him? How shall we return? How have we robbed you? You say we're robbing you, God. How have we robbed you? What have we spoken to God? said, you've spoken against me. They say, how have we spoken against you? You know what immediately came to my mind when I was studying this? Jesus Christ, when he says, you saw me naked and you, you did not give me clothes. You saw me in prison, you did not come and visit me. You saw me and you did not. You saw me, you did not. And the wicked, remember what they said? When did we see you naked? When did we see you in prison? What you talking about, God? Now see the motivations of the heart that they had been doing these things. And Jesus tells them, says, to the, least of, you know, to the degree that you did it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And so what he was saying is that you run your mouth real nice and pretty, but your hands are dirty. See what I did there? You didn't, I guess, because it, or it was just not funny at all. Pretty, dirty, I thought it was, all right. 
Jesus said, you're running your mouth, but your actions are telling on you. But the cool thing is, is that the other ones were the same way. And this shows you that it's the heart, right? Because they could have been doing all these things. Because they did have a pretty cool list of stuff they were doing, right? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And Jesus didn't rebuke them. He didn't say, no, you ain't cast out no demons. Apparently, they might have been. He still says, depart from me. I never knew you. But getting back. He says, of the, of the righteous, he says, you're blessed because you saw me naked and you clothed me. You saw me hungry. You gave me food. You saw me in prison. You came and visited me. But the, but the weird thing is, is that the righteous... The sheep, they answer the same way. They say, when did we see you naked? When did we see you in, when did we feed you, Lord, we didn't see you? And he says to them, to the degree that you have done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. You know what that tells me? Read between the lines a little bit. You know what it tells me? Their whole life was just, that's just what they did. They didn't even pay attention. They didn't keep record of, of how many hungry people they fed they were like this is just what we do it wasn't a big deal they wouldn't keep them they wouldn't check in a list it was just kind of who they were right it was their heart now the other people was the one that was presenting the list they're like we've done all these things and then jesus says you, you didn't do any of these things and they were like well when did we see that it's not about what you do it's about who you know and who you love the heart will always reveal, the heart will always reveal who you truly are. And what the hands do often is indicative of where the heart is. Well, these rhetorical questions are going to be laid out against them, and he's going to just hit it, boom, 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 like crazy. Listen to the first. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now, it's an interesting question to this answer. And we're going to have to get into a little bit of theology. Amen? Now, <clears throat> it's theology that we've touched on a little bit, and we discuss all the time, because it seems to be one of the hot topics for the last 2,000 years. But it is the sovereignty of God. As a matter of fact, this is one of the evidences that the book of Malachi is inspired and, and is rightly in the canonical um, record, is that he says, in answering this question, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And he answers, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build. But I will tear it down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Well, the first thing I want to show you here is that the book of Malachi is quoted in this section, is quoted in many places in the New Testament, but this one uh, has a direct reference in Romans chapter 9. Now, I want to touch on Romans chapter 9. I won't have a ton of time to stay there. We could stay there for about nine years. 
But Romans chapter 9, specifically verse 13, quotes this verse where it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, I want to talk about the sovereignty of God in election as the evidence for the love of God. Now, if you know anything about this topic, and many of you do because we've talked about it, some of you agree with where I stand and on sovereign grace, and some of you don't. Some of you are more uh, Arminian, free will, libertarians. That's fine. This is not a divorcing issue. You can stand where you want to stand. I have the reasons why I stand where I stand. You have reasons why you stand where you stand. Let, let every man be a liar, but God is true. Okay? Work it out for yourself with fear and trembling. But I want to show you here that one thing is for sure about sovereign grace doctrine, and, and sovereign grace doctrine is this, is that every man is wicked beyond imagination and already stands condemned under the sovereignty and the righteous judgment of God because of his sin. And that he is dead in his trespasses and sins, and he has no ability to love the Lord, to seek the Lord, or to believe in the Lord. That there are none righteous, no, not one. There are none who seek God. And that the only way that that individual who is dead in their trespasses and sins and totally depraved, the only way that they can come to God is that God would wake them up, regenerate them, give them the faith that does not belong to them, but is a gift of God, lest any man should boast, and bring them into salvation, thereby changing their heart and giving them a new life, recreating them, giving them new birth, and bringing them in to his kingdom. Okay, that's sovereign grace. That you do not choose God, but God chose you. Okay, that's sovereign grace. One accusation and one uh, one critique of this view of the sovereignty of God is that it's not a loving doctrine at all. That it portrays and paints the picture of a hate-filled, angry God that does not love all people, but that condemns some people to hell without even a chance that they might come into His kingdom. Well, let's read Romans 9, and then we'll go back to Malachi and what I want to try to lay out for you is not only is that not true, but that the very fact that God overlooks some and elects any, that they might be awakened unto salvation, is a demonstration and an evidence to the fact that God is loving beyond what you could possibly imagine. Now, there will be several questions after this, I'm sure, of other things that come up, and I would be glad to discuss any of that with you down the road. Let's look at Romans chapter 9. Let's start in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only 
So, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now that's a weighty text, isn't it? So many questions start flooding in. So many questions. Now this is my speculation. I'll tell you that before I say it. I believe many of our issues that we have with this text arise out of a cultural understanding of man and not a biblical understanding of man. It comes out of a cultural understanding of who God is and not a biblical understanding of who God is. Listen to the questions that start arising because Paul gets the same questions Sovereign grace people get. He says, what, they say, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You see? His audience would have questioned justice too. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean he's already chosen Jacob and hated Esau? What do you mean? That's unjust. That's not fair. He anticipated the questions. What, sh- what then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is sovereign. If he wants to choose some for salvation and some not, that's completely his prerogative. I just got to deal with the text. So then it does not, listen to the verse. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? You made me this way, God. Verse 20, but who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And he goes on. Let's go back to Malachi. Romans 9. To many is a chapter in the Bible that they just want to dismiss altogether and say, Oh, it it can't be. It can't be. It just can't be. Because we know that God is just. And that's just not fair. But I tell you the truth that the chapter answers that for us. But I want to go beyond that. I want to go beyond the idea that it's it's not an injustice. 
I want to go beyond that idea. And if you struggle with this, I understand. Theologians have struggled with this for 2,000 years plus, okay? This is not the easiest topic. It's not a one-sermon topic. If you want to talk more about it, we can talk more about it. But I want to go beyond the idea that this would be unjust. We're going to dismiss that idea because Paul said, is there any injustice in God? Does this mean he's not just, that he already chose Jacob and he didn't choose uh, Esau? Even before they were born and could do anything good or bad, it's not as if Jacob deserved it and Esau didn't, or that uh, Esau was bad and Jacob was good. He said before they were even born and had a chance to do anything good or bad, I already made my decision. Jacob, I love Esau, I hated. How, God? It seems so unfair. Let's dismiss that idea because Paul says, is there any injustice in God? He says, by no means. God is completely sovereign over creation, and every one of you out here sit under his power. He'll do with you whatever he pleases, whether you like it or not. Let's dismiss that idea because we understand that's not unjust at all. And we understand it, if nothing more, we could talk all day, but nothing more about God has the right to do with you whatever he wants. You're his. Okay? He created you. Whatever he wants to do, it's his prerogative. But I want to go beyond that. Not only is it not unjust, but it's actually loving. It is actually an evidence for the love of God. You say, you say oh, that's a doctrine of, of, of hate. Oh, no, it's not. Oh, no, it's not. It's a doctrine of love. It is the doctrine of love. You say, what, what, wait, what, what, how? You, God just, just lets people just go straight to hell with no chance. You tell me that's a doctrine of love? Absolutely. absolutely. Charles Spurgeon preached a message out of Romans 9 one time. I think I've told you this in here before, but I'll say it again for the people in the back. Charles Spurgeon preached a, a, a sermon from Romans 9 one time, and he got done, and pretty heavy sermon. These are always heavier theologically, emotionally. Preached a sermon, and, and when he was done, many people in tears just wrestling with the text. And he's, he's, he goes up to stand at the door, and he's shaking people's hands as they go out, and a lady comes in, and she's just so burdened. And she's got tears coming down her face, and she looks at Spurgeon, and she says, Preacher, that's such a hard text. And he says, Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. It's a hard text. She looks at him, and she says, I just don't see how God could hate Esau. And he looks back at her, and he says, Ma'am, I just don't know how God could love Jacob. The one, you have to ask the question, the one that demands God answer for his hatred of the wicked sinner in Esau. What? Esau deserved it a thousand times over. The question we have to ask, how could he love Jacob? Especially if you've ever read the story of Jacob. That joker, you know, his name, what does it mean? Hill grabber? Right? He's trying to steal his way out. Like he's trying to fight to be first. He's so prideful, so arrogant. He's a joker. He's a liar. He's a manipulator. Do you remember how he got the birthright? He dressed up as his brother Esau, put hair on him. I don't know if he glued hair on him or what. 
but he could like rub stuff on it so it smelled bad. Because apparently Esau was this jacked up rugged hunter who liked to kill. And his daddy liked the soup that he made, right? So Jacob puts a bunch. And, and I, I think Jacob was like a, a real light skin, just smooth skin, you know, kind of pretty boy. You know, and Esau was this roughed, rugged hunter, you know, who was a bad man. And he would kill and he would bring. And, ja- and uh, 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 Jacob would, uh, or his father Isaac, he would eat really good. And so Esau was going to get the birthright. The first son always gets the birthright. So what happened? Right before, uh, right before he had died, his daddy had died. He dressed up. He manipulated. He came in, and his mama set him up. The mama was the one that done it because she loved Jacob more. What is this, a jacked-up family? So uh, his mama done talked Jacob into saying, look, look, look. I know how we can get this birthright for you. Get this hair. Let me, let me glue this hair on your face. We've got to make you hairy. Rub this on you. You will stink like Esau. Right? And then you go in and you be like, hey, daddy, uh, it's Esau. Uh, here's your soup. Hey, could I go ahead and get that birthright? <laughs> hey, yo, Adrian. <laughs> and it works. His father actually gives him the birthright. I, he must have been a little senile, too, because... He's, he gets, so my whole point is, is that Jacob is a scoundrel, right? So why did, why did God love him? It wasn't because of anything that he had done. It was because of God's purposes. It was because of God's decreative will. It's because it's what God wanted. Listen to Romans 9 again when it says, it says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might stand. I hear so many theologians say that election stuff. You got to deal with it, bro. You got. I don't. You better just formulate a plan. You've got to deal with the words. And I, look, we're going live. You got to deal with the words predestination, election, God's elect, God's chosen, the remnant. You got to deal with it. You, you got to deal. You can disagree with me. That's fine. You got to deal with it. Okay? You've got to. Well, here we see him for the purpose of election so that that might stand. He chose Jacob and he did not choose Esau because God had a plan and God knew exactly what he was doing and God was pushing that plan and he was going to make sure that that plan was done and that it was carried out and that it was fulfilled in the end because God knows best. Now, remember, I made the argument, making the statement, that not only is this not an injustice on God's part, but quite the opposite, that is the greatest demonstration of love on God's part. Now you say, well, the greatest demonstration of love is Christ down on the cross. Yes and amen. Because all of this comes back to Jesus Christ. And we'll get there in just a minute. So let's look here. He uses this line of reasoning to evidence the fact that his love was great for them, and that is, is that he chose, he loved Jacob, and he did not love Esau, that he hated Esau. You say, where is the love? Psalm 8, verse 4 says, what is man that you would think of him? What is man that you would consider him? Romans chapter 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In the days of Noah, it was said that every thought and intention was continually 
wicked always. You see, we have this view of man that, oh, he's not that bad. Everybody deserves. Everybody deserves salvation. Everybody deserves. That would be wrong if God didn't let. It would be wrong. No. The fact that God would come and awaken a dead sinner like you. If he would have just done one, especially Marcus. It would have been a demonstration of the mercy of God that the world was not worthy of. Me, you, and anybody else in here. Now let me answer one question that may be rattling around in your head. Well, who are these elect? This is where I would simply say, we don't know. (laughs) But I would follow that up with, I can say this whosoever believes well the bible says who whoever wants to believe can yep i got no problem the bible says that there's a certain number of elect yep we have no idea who the elect are we do know that we can tell who the elect are after because we know that the elect will be saved So the Lord has a certain number of elect that he is going to save. He will save. Jesus Christ says, all that the Father has given to me, they will come to me, and I will not lose not even one. Well, who are those? Whosoever will come, let him come. This doctrine of love is such Because it looks out over an ocean of wicked unbelievers who deserve to go straight to hell. Who deserve to be walked by. Who deserve to be looked over. And this great God who is righteous in all of his ways. Who is perfect in all of his ways. Is holy. Stoops down in a million billion in an ocean of wickedness and says but you you're coming with me why because I love you and no other reason but you yep you you're coming with me and you you're coming with me and you you're coming with me and any of you who would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved You do not have to compromise preaching this lovely, wonderful, powerful, all-consuming gospel to the masses because we know that there is a select few who will receive it. Why do people think that this is contradictory? I preach the gospel to any who would hear, knowing that only some will. Knowing that it is not the the wonderful beauty and articulation of my words that would, that would convince them that this is what they need to do. No, I am but an idiot. Amen. Hey, I knew it was coming. <laughs> I knew it. That's why I say God exercised a special provision of grace on you. 
But to know I preach the gospel to any that would hear, knowing that I have nothing in and of myself, but it is the power of God. The, the, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. And when that gospel seed goes out and it hits the one that God elected, that man goes, Whoa, that's me. I'm right here. I heard you. Remember what Isaiah said? Here am I. Here am I. I'll go. I'll go. Why? Because I love him. Why? Oh, no. Right? There's a special power in the gospel. You see, this, ho- this other side of this, and believe what, what you want, back it up with Scripture, that's fine. But the other side of this, the, the, the idea that it's not really God, it's the man. Although John tells us that, not by the will of the flesh, not by the power, not by flesh and blood, but by the Spirit of God. There's so many. But this idea that, no, it's the, it, the man's the one got to choose. You, you show me a man smart enough to choose. Show me a man good enough. Show me a man that seeks God. Show me a woman that, that, that is, is good enough, has enough good in her that she will, she'll choose to do right. She'll choose, no. Every one of them are wicked, deplorable, horrible individuals that deserve to go straight to hell. And it's only when God and his love and mercy and grace for some unknown reason, but his love alone comes and says, arise. And you go, once I was blind and now I see. If you're a part of the kingdom of God, you didn't choose God. Not until God chose you. Yes, every one of you must choose. But every one of you won't choose because you hate God. Until God chooses to awaken you to his wonderful beauty. And then you can't not choose him because you want him. And that's the beautiful doctrine of compatibility where God awakens a dead soul, gives it new life. And when they have eyes to see, they want him and they can't not have him. And this is why we understand that those who are truly born again and truly saved, they don't turn back. They may waver, they may struggle, but they won't turn back because they have the Spirit of God living in them. And they can't not have Him. And when they get down, they need to get up because I can't stand being down. And I do struggle, I do fall. But, but Lord, please, I can't stand being down here in this thing. Whereas those who have just uttered something with their mouth fall down in the mud. And they know they shouldn't be laying down there, but it ain't because, they ain't, it ain't because God ain't down there. It's because these other people seeing them lay down there. But they're like, I'm getting up as they rolling around in the mud enjoying the mud i'm getting up <laughs> just sliding over here a little bit i'm gonna get up i promise i'm gonna get oh man just give me just one more minute right and they just love their sin they love it and they want it and they get up for a minute and and they get in the in the church and they read the bible and they just oh they don't like god okay I'm gonna worship just a little while and then I'll get get back in my sin a little bit and then I'll get back over here and this is what the book this is what the book is about the book is about how many of y'all did I just smack right slam in the mouth right I slapped me in the mouth how many how many people you fall you struggle some of you've been struggling with something for a little while now but it just it makes your skin crawl. It makes you sick to your stomach. To know that this is a blemish on you and, and to know that you're defaming God's name because you are a child of God and that you've been born again and, and you're struggling and don't even nobody know about it. But you know about it. And God knows about it. 
And that's enough to make you sick. But then there's a, there are those in here that I hit too. You ain't going to tell nobody. But you just can't wait to get out of here. To go enjoy your sin a little while longer. And then you'll come back over here on a Wednesday or Thursday, maybe next Sunday. Do what you need to do because you know you've got to keep up appearances. You've got to keep making sure the checklist is good so when you stand before God in heaven, you can say, but I did all of these things. But might I warn you, lest you hear the words, depart from me, you accursed. I never did know you. I never, you know what the, the word know there is an intimate knowing. I was, I was never intimate with you. You never whispered in my ear. You never laid in my embrace. You never wrapped your arms around me and longed for the day that you would be able to be with me fully. You never got along with me. You never searched for me. You never came after me. You never slayed something in your life that really did actually hurt so that you could be with me, you adulterous people. You never knew me. You was did some things that I was connected with. You knew some of my people. But you don't live here. This is not your house. Go out. Get out of my presence. This is not your house. Yet I have loved Jacob. But he saw I've hated. Another, Another question would be you mean to tell me and this is another doctrine that is completely lost people people have utterly abandoned this idea i'm not i'm not going to be ashamed to say it today nor will i next week nor the week after that god does not love everybody that hard to stomach He's at least one. Let me say this. Proverbs 5, you hate all doers of iniquity. There's this idea floating around. And there's an argument to be made for it to a degree. We got to look at some perspective on this. Because I think that we could say, in some sense, that God has love and shows love and mercy and grace to every inhabitant of the earth as far back as Adam and Eve. I think that's reasonable. Even if nothing else than common grace. He loves or likes or whatever you enough to allow you to continue breathing today. Even for those in here who do not have a relationship with God, and in a crowd this size, I'm sure there's a few, that God would care enough to not just strike us down where we stand. But I do not see how you could say that God has the same love for every individual. I don't see it. For God has a special love for His children the elect, 
the people of God. In love, he predestines them before the foundations of the world. There's a special love that God has for some of you, for all who would call on his name, for anyone who would believe. There is a special love for you that has been set out before the foundations of the world that he has called your name and you have answered because he has done a work in you. That's a demonstration of love like no other. But Proverbs 5 says that he, you hate all doers of iniquity. You've ever heard the phrase, one, or not once they'd always say, but uh, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. That's a little problematic. And not that God hates sin and shows some grace on people. We might can make a case for that. That's not the problem. The problem is this. When speaking of unbelievers anyway. Can you please show me in scripture where there is a dividing line between the person and his sin? People and their sin cannot be distinguished apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. They are born in sin. They are sinful. John Piper uh, put it this way. He said, I don't just do sinful things. I am sinful. You're still not convinced. He said another way. He who has made himself a friend of the world has made himself an enemy unto God. I, I, I cannot wax soft on this. Because you need. And if you don't like me after this, I'll take that. I would rather offend you than God. You need to understand the predicament that you're in. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. God does not love you like that. God is not your friend. God is not on your side. God is not overlooking your stuff. God is not going to just forget about it. No. If you're not in Christ, you're an enemy of God. And you will go to war with Him. And you will not win. And He will destroy you. Like you could not possibly imagine. What is love? This is love. Not that we loved God. But that God loved us. And sent his own son. That he might be a propitiation of sin. What is propitiation? Propitiation is to pay the sin debt. That you had accumulated against a God. In which his fierce anger and hatred was remaining on you that those who have believed in Christ Jesus have moved out of death but those who do not believe in the son remain under the wrath of God okay we've talked about Romans 9 we've talked about the predetermining work and the predestination of God 
We talked about the fact that God has the right over the clay to do whatever he wants. There is no way that we can say that it's unjust. God should and we deserve death, destruction, and hell. But in his great, unadulterated, pure love that was not caused or brought about by anything that we've done because we only have evil. His pure love was poured out on us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And those that go to hell, let me answer this too, do not go to hell because God made them go to hell. They go to hell because they chose to go to hell. And God chose not to stop them. He let them do what they want to do. No one has ever went to hell because God forced them to sin. He simply let them do whatever they wanted to do. And they chose the darkness over the light. Well, let's look at the Son of the living God in light of this election for just a moment. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believeth in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. You see, Christ is the elect Son. Christ is Israel, the only true Israelite that completely and perfectly followed the letter of the law to a T in order to become the salvation of the world. Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God that through Him and through His propitiatory sacrifice would pay the sin debt of who? The whole world? No. Whosoever would believe those that are carved out for salvation are only those who will believe in the Son of the living God. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 27 and 28 tell us, tell us this. He, speaking of Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for the for those of the people since he did this once for all he offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever Jesus Christ the complete fulfiller of the law does not have to meet the standard of the law in so much to be a high priest forever as he does being born as a high priest after the order of, of Melchizedek forever. Now to be sure, Jesus Christ had to have perfectly fulfilled the law to be a perfect high priest. But he had to be born the son of the living God to be the perfect high priest forever and the perfect sacrifice simultaneously. Christ is the elect means by which we come to God. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man coming to the Father but by me. In the book of Acts, it says that he was handed over by the pre-planned will of God. 
that God had planned it out. He had predestined it. He had pre-planned it. He had already decided what was going to happen. And Jesus Christ was that elect son who was true Israel, who came and was handed over. It was done by the hands of sinful men, and it was a sin. But at the exact same time, it was the predetermined will of God working through the actions of sinful men, and it says it pleased him to crush him. Yet there is no sin found in God. You see how that perfectly meshes together. Jesus Christ is not only the elect means, but he is also the elect end. John 5, John 5, 23 says this. For the Father, this is verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There is only one way to please God. There is only one way to please God the Father, and that is to honor the Son. Every other religion that does not believe that Jesus Christ is God, Son of the living God, does not honor the Father. Jesus Christ is Son of the living God. And it's always been that way. Always. 2 Corinthians 1.20 say, All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And Galatians 3.16-18 tell us that the children of promise are through Jesus Christ. Now, how does that deal with Malachi? How, do, how are those related? The book of Malachi tells us that it was through the purposes of election. We understand that through Malachi. It says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. It goes on to tell us of how he has continually made provisions for Jacob, though he did not deserve it. And he has continually poured out wrath against Esau, though he did deserve it, but though there was nothing that calls that to be that way. It was just the elect purposes of God. We understand, and it's written through progressive revelation, that it was for the express purposes of election so they might stand is the reason why he loved Jacob and he hated Esau. And all of that boils down to this, that Jesus Christ was the elect son of God who was not only the means of salvation, he was the end of salvation, and he was the way that anyone could hold on to these promises that were coming through the line of David. Apart from Jesus Christ, you have no hope. Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God through which your sin will be taken away. The great cry of a surety goes out for the elect remnant. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, and we'll get into this later on. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The children of Abraham the children of Jacob, the children of Isaac, the children of the lineage flowing down will be named not by bloodlines, but by faith. We'll end in Galatians chapter 3. You guys can come on up. Consider Galatians chapter 3 in thinking of the, the 
promise of God and being children of God. And who do these promises, who do these promises apply to? Before I read this, let me, let me say this. I think that we should examine ourselves whether or not we be in the faith. And you may be wondering now, man, am I elect? I mean, I don't know if I deserve to be elect. Well, let me go ahead and answer that. No, you don't. None of you deserve to be elect. I don't deserve to be elect. The only way that you can even know you're elect is if you're believing in the, the Son of God. Do you have the fruit of the Spirit in your life? No one deserves to be the elect. No one earned to be the elect. No one, no one was smart enough to believe. No one was smart enough to choose. It was a work that God did inside of you. There is great assurance in this that whoever says that he loves God but does not love his brother is a liar. Whoever says that he loves God but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Do you love God? Do you, do you feel conviction when you sin against God? Is your heart right? Do you love to to be around God's people? Do you love to get in God's word? Do you love to sing praises unto his name? Do you love to pray and to get after him in prayer? Do you, do you want to be with him? Do you love when you are wrapped in his presence? Does it tear you apart when you strayed away? Galatians chapter 3 verse 16. Now the promise... Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For the inheritance comes by the law. For if the inheritance comes by the law... It no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. <coughs> The fact that God is among us, the fact that God is here, the fact that God has loved you, the fact that God has shown mercy on you, the fact that God is allowing you to hear another gospel pre presentation today, the fact that God is allowing you to hear, come all you weary sinners, come and set your, 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 your troubles down at the foot of Christ, come all you who are weary and heavy laden, he will give you rest. The fact that you are allowed once more to come in these doors and to hear that Jesus Christ is son of the living God, behold the the lamb that takes away the sins of the world the fact that you are getting the opportunity and that I am able to come up here and hear the gospel for myself and preach the gospel to myself the fact that God has not given up on us yet is the fact that God is loving on you he is showing you mercy he is granting you grace to hear but you must turn from your sin you must turn unto the Savior you must love him. You must bow down to him. He must be your master. He must be your creator. He cannot be your hobby. 
And you will know that God has loved you. For he is for you and not against you. He has carried you all this way. Yet I have troubled him. And I myself struggle. But we know God's love stands. For it's not in our righteousness but his. Praise be to God. For the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Who saw fit to pour his blood out. For an old sinner like me. Who was worthy of hell. But got the crown. Today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your heart as in the days of old. Don't be a non-elect today. Charles Spurgeon prayed to God and said, God, save the elect and then elect some more. To be quite honest with you, I don't really know how all that works. I know it's right here. I know i got to deal with it. I think it's a glorious doctrine that would say that I'm a wicked wicked man I would have never even chose God maybe you're that good you can believe that but I know me I know me I know where I was I know I love my wickedness I love drugs I love I love the darkness I love to spit and cuss and fight I loved it I didn't it wasn't I loved it it was by a miracle it was by the grace of God alone that this old wicked sinner was turned around. I can go ahead and tell you right now, maybe it was different from you, but I did not choose God. Not until he chose me. I wouldn't have either. I don't know, maybe you got something on me. I would not have chose God. And I didn't. Jesus looked at the disciples and said, You didn't choose me. I chose you. Let's all stand to our feet. If you feel his voice calling you today, I'd tell you to come, but he's going to make you. <laughs> no, I, in all seriousness, this gives me great comfort in preaching because I just preach it. He does the work. So if you feel him drawing you today, you can resist no longer. Then come and bow down on your face and give him everything. Maybe you're a child of God and you've wondered a little bit. Maybe you're hearing the call not of salvation but of repentance. God grants that too, Hebrews. Everything is a gift of God. So whether you need to be saved or whether you need to repent, do business with God today. And pray for your preacher that he could repent, that he could stay close to God. Pray for your leaders. Pray for the band. Pray for the people that would come against us. Pray for God's glory. Do business with God.